everyone, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I research anything that I want at all, and you listen to it. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. So this week, this episode, um, I'm going to start by telling you how it kind of came to be, because it's a little bit odd. Sure. Maybe you wondered Maybe you how did. in the world <laughs> we're talking about delicious disasters. You might wonder what that means. Um, cooking accidents that just turned out really well like mm, banana flambe that's a whole other like idea Mm -hmm. um and topic i i think Uh, delicious foods invented by accident i knew Um, that wasn't the topic but i was trying to throw everybody off you did a good job i think Mm -hmm. um so it kind of started when i found out that there had been this huge canadian maple syrup heist that i somehow knew nothing about and i thought how do I not know about this? Right. Uh, so I started there, but then I learned about a huge molasses, you know, accident in, in Boston hundred years ago. And I thought, There's that's pretty here. crazy too. Yeah. So I kind of collected these stories and then I realized, you know, I've already got two. We're, we're starting to develop a theme. Mm-hmm. I'll just, you know, Google the rest of the, the things. And, and so, yeah, I kind of, co- you know, created this theme Learned about some other sweeteners, honey and sugar, you know. And oh, you didn't know about those found... before. <laughs> brand new. Brand new concept. <laughs> okay, good. Um, yeah, then I found some, you know, terrible, terrible things that they did to people. So Of course. And I'm not talking about, like, diabetes or something. I'm talking about, oh. you know. Well, I mean, that's ter- pretty terrible, too. moments in history, not, you know. Sure. Chronic conditions here. Sure. Um, <laughs> all right. Perfect. Let's well, if that's the case, then teach me something. Great. So I know the title says it's a history of delicious disasters. So so for our first sweet tale from history... We're going back to the dawn of time. We're going to go all the way back to 2008. The dawn of time. To the foreign and exotic land of the United States. Okay. Georgia, actually. We're going to go to Georgia. Okay, let's do it. Um... Yeah. See, I mean, some of these stories are going to be more recent history, clearly. Sure. Uh, history is a flexible term, I've found. Well, yesterday is history. Exactly. So. Very flexible, isn't it? Let's do it. Yeah. So, um, February 7th, 2008, there is a huge explosion and fire at the Imperial Sugar Refinery, which is uh, in a small town called Port Wentworth, Georgia, northwest of Savannah. Killed 14 people and 38 more were injured. And that includes like 14 that had really severe burns, life-threatening burns. Yikes. Um, But this was an accident that was entirely entirely foreseeable and almost 100% the fault of a neglectful profiteering company that didn't care about safety regulations. And um, I will will justify that position. You will see what I mean. Okay. Um, So what you probably don't know when you're at home baking pies and cookies, is that sugar is actually quite combustible. So you should never put it in the oven. (laughs) And many, lots of other things that turn into a fine dust. And uh, that's a phenomenon known as combustible dust. Okay. The wording makes sense. Combustible dust. A dust that's combustible, right? That's Mm -hmm. a pretty good, easy one to figure out. Um, We'll talk more about combustible dust later. But I want to talk about the background of you know, what happened leading up to this. So this sugar refinery um, was built in 1916 on the banks of the Savannah River and Imperial Sugar bought it in 1997. It was a refinery until then, just a different company. 
Um, it was a it's complex. It had a four-story main building. It had outbuildings and then sugar storage silos. Okay. Big silos for yeah. all the sugar. Um, it was the main employer in Port Wentworth before this disaster. I mean, Port Wentworth had 3,500 people, so... So not, not, not a big place, the, yeah. No, no. But yes, they were the main employer. Um, so we're on February 7th, 2008. It's about 7.15. And oddly timed, I don't know. Funnily enough, the new Imperial Sugar Company CEO was actually touring the facility at this time. Oh. With a few other employees. Um, they reported to... They were startled by what they thought sounded and felt like a heavy roll of packing material dropped from a forklift somewhere in the packing building. Okay. Um, then they estimated three to five seconds later, they heard a loud explosion that knocked them backwards. Okay. Um, outside, like massive flames and debris kind of exploded at the top of the packing building and the silos and the fire sprinkler system failed. So there's nothing to put the fire out because of the explosion. Right, just kind of like knocked them right out. The yeah. sprinklers, so there's no sprinklers. Um, fireballs shot through the packing and palletizer buildings um, because more and more sugar dust was kind of shaken loose, and the concrete floors snapped and buckled. Uh, sugars kind of started to rain down from the high places it had been after being on fire. Um, or while on fire? No, it wasn't on fire yet, but there okay. was fires down below, so sugar kind of fell down into these fires below. Um, Enclosed conveyors had fire belt, fireballs kind of shooting through those little tunnel areas. Um, so it, there continued to be new fires ignited and new explosions for 15 minutes um, while more sugar exploded and more sugar fell down and all that was happening. Right. Uh, unfortunately, at this time, there was actually 112 employees on site. Um, quite a few. So one week later, so February 14th, they had finally put out the worst of the fire. But the sugar storage silos were still burning. Um, so we're talking about 30 meter tall silos. So 100 feet tall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, full of sugar. They had been dumping water on them from helicopters for the last week. But it wasn't working. So they had to call in like specialist crews, specialist equipment. They did not say or specify anywhere. I was reading what that was. How you actually put out molten sugar. Um... Yeah, maybe some foam. I don't know. I don't know how this works, but... I don't know. Um, while they were doing the demolition and the cleanup, they actually recovered more than one and a half million kilograms of hardened sugar from the silos, so... Wow, so it's I'm just trying to I'm just trying to think of one and a half million kilograms of, you know, solid kind of melted together sugar. Yeah, that'd make cleanup really tough. I'm sure it's like, <laughs> like, like rock hard, solid, and like... Kind of like glass. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, okay. So what went wrong here? I mean, I kind of already alluded to the fact that this was all pretty foreseeable and preventable. Um, I would say two main things came into play. The sugar itself and the kind of neglect from imperial sugar. Um, so let's talk more about combustible dust. Yay. Good. Five elements have to be present for a combustible dust explosion. Okay. okay. Fuel. That's the sugar. Check. Yeah. Oxygen. Great. An ignition source. Well, we're going to find out about that later. Okay. Um, dispersion. You know, there is some free free room. And also, confinement. 
needs to be a small enough space for explosions to happen, but a big enough space for explosions to happen. It's yeah, kind of sort funny. of like a sweet spot. Of, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yep. Um, and and when combustible dust explosions occur, they're almost always followed by more explosions, as we just heard about with imperial sugar, because that first explosion will stir up dust that settled on different surfaces, and and that formed a dust cloud, which is then liable to explode, which is then going to disturb dust beside it. So you can get this chain reaction of explosions happening over and over. Um, I mean, you may have figured this out already, but the reason dust can be combustible is a surface area thing. Uh, more specifically, a surface area to volume mm-hmm. ratio type of thing. Like you're not going to set a sugar cube or a log on fire with a spark. No. But, you know, a very, very small bit of what, like sugar or wood. Yeah, like kindling in a fire. You use the small little kindling bits because they set on fire more easily. Right. But we're talking about combustible dust has to be between four or under 420 microns. So like very, very small. Very, yeah, I get Particles. It which are always going to have a high surface area to volume ratio, basically. Right. Um, the National Fire Protection Association, this is probably national of U.S., by the way, not Canada, but that's probably. okay. They probably still know the right information. They say if your room has at least 5% of its surface, surface area, sorry, covered with more than 0.8 millimeters of organic dust, you now have an explosion hazard. So... You don't necessarily need a lot of it. <laughs> no. It's just if it's fine enough, you have an issue. I mean, I got to clarify. The National Fire Protection Association didn't say 0.8 millimeters of organic dust. They actually said the much more ridiculous unit of 1 32nd of an inch of organic dust. I don't know how you even measure 1 32nd of an inch, but well, it's on the, good luck for drying. On a lot of tape measures. I mean, they've had yeah. a lot of marks on them, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got to have a lot of marks on them. Um I'll just drop an important safety note because I know this is totally going to come up in your everyday lives. Okay, good. But um, don't try to put out a combustible dust fire unless you've had the proper training because you'll probably disturb more dust and accidentally trigger an explosion or a fireball near your person. Just do not do it. Leave it alone. Seems like Let reasonable advice. experts do it. Um, but on top of all that, sugar just... It's pretty, it's pretty powerful. It's not just any combustible dust. It is four times more powerful than TNT well, it's a as an explosive. Energetic carbohydrate. I mean, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's why, you know, the body uses it so, right. so much. Yeah. We love to burn up sugar, don't we? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also really stable. Yes. So it's not the ideal explosive, as you probably know, because it's really hard to get it to release the energy stored in its chemical bonds. Yeah. It does store a lot of energy, though, in its chemical bonds is the point I'm trying to make. Yes. It, so it's if very... you can get it to explode, yeah. uh, watch out is what I'm trying to say. If you can get it to explode, it's four times as powerful as TNT. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I don't know if anyone's made caramel. When you heat up sugar on the stovetop, it will... Caramelize. Oh, sorry. <laughs> what kind of oven do you have? It's the uh, same as mine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you haven't had explosions in the oven yet? That's like my typical experience. Well, you're hiding that pretty well from me then. Yeah, I just, you know, do what I can. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's going to caramelize before it's going to catch on fire. Um, heat drives out water molecules. The sugar molecules link together in longer chains, and it turns brown because the sugar is being partially burned. If you did just, you know, leave the caramel on the stove, it will eventually turn black and become charcoal because 
you know, it's just carbon. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it does. It'll become, it'll become charcoal. The same way, you know, a log can kind of, you know, when you put out a fire, a campfire or something, you try to put it out and it's still kind of smoldering under the surface of the log and it can kind of burn itself up from the inside, but it's not really on fire. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of what sugar is doing when it's caramelizing. But at very high temperatures, the sugar itself can catch on fire with actual flames coming out of the sugar. That's when you got to worry. <laughs> yeah. So table sugar is sucrose. Um, when it's... Ex- like heated extremely hot, it'll decompose and form something called hydroxymethylferferol, which is very volatile, um, ignites really easily and sets the rest of the sugar on fire. So that's the problem is that when it gets too hot, it makes this very flammable chemical. Um, yeah, got it. It's, some people think hydroxymethylferferol is a potential biofuel because it's got so much sure. energy associated with it. Um, a lot of people don't. <laughs> There's drawbacks. Um, Table sugar is actually sometimes used as an ingredient in homemade firecrackers, and amateur rocket builders use it to mix with potassium nitrate as a fuel. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So the refinery fire, they um, when they took their measurements and stuff, it, they noticed it reached high temperatures of 2,200 degrees Celsius. Uh, and just for your reference, your campfire in the woods probably doesn't get over 600 Celsius. So yeah, yeah sugar burns hot. Yeah, and also it takes a lot to make it combust, so that makes sense. Like anything that takes a lot to combust usually will burn and excrete a, a, a pretty high temperature. I see, yes. Good point. But in refineries, so I didn't know how refineries, like what they did to make the sugar. I don't really know how that works. Um, so they pour sugar crystals through a heated dryer to remove all the moisture. Um, as you can imagine, this makes the item result especially more combustible, having all of its moisture removed. Sure. Um, they put the refined sugar on the conveyor belt to bring it to the silo, and dust floats up into the air. Mm-hmm. Um, they also might grind sugar to make a confectioner sugar powder. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they grind granulated sugar a little bit to make all the grains like a more uniform size. So all the different yeah. grindings, obviously, create more dust. Um it's clear to me that things need to be cleaned to, <laughs> to uh, uh, get around this risk. And it should have been clear as well <laughs> to the management of imperial sugar. Um, like, it's clear that they should have known about this and did nothing to prevent it. In 2004, the Chemical Safety and Hazard Investigation Board conducted a study of dust explosions because there were three fatal accidents in 2003. Um, there was a combined 14 people had been killed. Uh were those all sugar or, or just like None of other... them were sugar. These just... are all combustible dust explosions. None of them are sugar, but yeah. the point remains mm-hmm. um, that these precautions should be taken in the category of combustible dust, not... It doesn't matter what the dust is. Of course. Um, between 1980 and 2005, there had been 281 combustible dust explosions, a total of 119 deaths and 718 injuries. So... Um, they said this is a severe risk. We need to address this. They brought it to OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health yep. Administration. Well, I don't know. I know you know. I knew that. Not Sorry, not everybody knows. does. Now everybody else there does. <laughs> so they had been rec- like implementing all these recommendations into workplace safety and stuff by 2008. Like it wasn't 100% fully integrated, but clearly people had known about this since the 80s. And, mm-hmm. and at least since four years prior, they'd made a very big priority out of it. Um, 
And yet, <laughs> workers at the refinery said the factory was just completely outdated. Most of the machines were more than 28 years old. They said the only reason that they were, you know, continuing to operate was because they had good access to the rail and shipping links and stuff. And other than that, this place was, you know, treacherous. Okay. <laughs> um, like, in the last full fiscal year before this happened... Um, they refined, okay, this is another one of these wonderful imperial units I'm going to get okay, mad great. about. 14.51 million hundredweight of sugar. Yeah, that's a measurement I use daily. Yeah, so I looked it up, and it's something about being 100 pounds, but also 112 pounds. It's confusing. So something mm. about maybe 1,400 million pounds of sugar. Not, let's just say 9% of the nation's total sugar was refined at this facility okay okay so they were busy but not doing very well financially okay. which may be why a lot of corners were cut um sales were down eight percent in the last year profits were down 50 percent from that year's fourth mm -hmm. quarter and the stock was also down by 50 percent. so yeah. um bad news bears and uh <laughs> Doesn't look good. It looks like they're just trying to save money by not doing anything. So there is a big joint federal investigation, you know, like the OSHA and Chemical Safety Board. Everyone got together and wrote a report. Yeah. Um, so here's what they say happened. According, according to them, the machinery used to process the sugar wasn't well kept. It spilled sugar onto the floor. Um, often the sugar was up to knee deep. Oh. Great. Um, hmm. workers would use compressed air to clean the floors, which, as you know, is not helpful because you're just moving it somewhere else, usually somewhere up high. Yeah. That's not, that's not cleaning. You're just coating that's just, everything that's else. That's just hiding the evidence. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, like, the inside of the ventilation ducts and the rafters and, the, like, everything had sugar all over it. Um, they did have dust collectors, but they weren't regularly cleaned, they weren't maintained, and they were too small to handle the amount of dust in the factory. Um, a steel conveyor belt was used to transport the sugar under the silos. So this conveyor kept getting blocked by clumps of sugar, and then it would spill sugar all onto the floor. So in 2007, they decided they would enclose the conveyor belt um, in steel sheets to prevent contamination, which... Um, took away kind of the ventilation uh, that would clear like big amounts of sugar away. That's that confinement aspect yeah. of the combustible sugar, a place that allows a lot of pressure to kind of build up. They found that the first explosion took place inside that enclosed conveyor belt. Okay. Um, so here's the, the ignition source. They decided a blockage caused a buildup of sugar dust and an overheated bearing created a spark and that's all that's all she wrote a little spark um so then the sugar dust explosions traveled throughout the building more explosion happened kind of told you about how it traveled along earlier right um but just the factory itself like i said was in it was old um it had a lot of aspects that weren't safe to begin with the ceiling was wooden tongue and groove. Oh. And they had creosote throughout the building, which is known as a fat lighter because it was such a huge fire risk. Um, <laughs> 
Imperial Sugar employees were interviewed, uh, and only 40 of the workers, oh no, I'm so sorry, 40 of the workers never received training on how to exit the building in an emergency, and only five workers recalled ever having a fire drill. So, Imperial Sugar's lack of preparation, or whatever you want to call it, um, actually creating new legislation about combustible dust hazards and OSHA uh, has made combustible dust one of their top priorities. Yeah, makes Since sense. Since then, they fined Imperial Sugar $8.8 million. Um, They cited Imperial Sugar for 211 violations at the... To be fair, to be fair, at this refinery and one other one they had in Gramercy, Louisiana. Okay. So, you know, wasn't so it wasn't just all just a, that Yeah, one. maybe they, they had got... like 100 violations per refinery. Maybe. Just spread it out a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the settlement ended up being that the company agreed to pay $6 million and they would admit no fault, which, like, legally, I guess, is what she got to do, but it's scummy that they can get away with that. But by September of 2010, 44 lawsuits had been filed against Imperial Sugar or its cleaning contractor. Uh, 18 have been settled, as far as I could figure out. Okay. So... For our next sordid sweetener story, mm. we are going to go to Boston. Okay. Let's about do it. 100 years ago and talk about molasses. Let's do it. Okay, so you can attest to this, Everett, but I was uh, trying to like figure out what is molasses. Besides, you know, sticky, sweet brown liquid we use for this or that. Like, like what is it? How do we get it? And everything just kept saying it's a product of sugar refinement, but not like, how do you get it from the sugar? Finally found it, so I'm including it here because it shouldn't be so hard to find. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> so first, manufacturers crush sugar cane or sugar beets to extract the juice from them. And then they boil down the juice to form sugar crystals. And molasses is the thick brown syrup left over after they remove the crystals from the juice. Okay. Uh, they do it again, though, like more and more times. And each time they're making a different type of molasses. Yeah, it gets thicker and thicker, I assume, the more times they repeat this process. That would make the most sense to me, but it, I don't know. It didn't say that exactly. Well, I'm just thinking that each time it would remove more water content, basically. Yes, that, yeah. that makes sense. Um so molasses is mainly a sweetener or baking ingredient nowadays, mm-hmm. uh, but before the 20th century, it was used uh, to make alcohol. Okay. But like ethanol. So not just drinking liquor, like just ethanol for all sorts of different purposes that they would use ethanol for. Yeah. Um, so in 1919, when this molasses disaster happened, there is a company called the United States Industrial Alcohol Company. Um, And their subsidiary, the Purity Distilling Company facility, had a big molasses tank. Really huge tank. Good for them. (laughs) It was 15 meters tall and 27 meters in diameter. Wow. So 50 feet tall, 90 foot diameter, uh, at a volume of 8.7 million liters. That's quite a few. (laughs) Just, yeah, just a few. Yeah. Just a little bit. More than a baker's dozen. The tank was used to store molasses coming in from the ships as it was kind of located near the harbor. And then later the molasses would get transferred by pipeline to the plant from the, from the vat. Okay. But this tank, as we're going to find out, was not built well. This is going to be a theme. Negligence mm. is 
often a theme in workplace disasters, I find. Great. Um, it was built quickly in 1950 to accommodate the demands of industrial alcohol because uh, molasses can be distilled to create, like I said, ethanol and types of alcohol that are used to make explosives. Which, as you might imagine, were in pretty high demand in the year 1915. During the First World War, if that wasn't clear. Yeah. Um, the tank wasn't even tested before they filled it with molasses. To be clear, when you make a giant thing like this, they would normally put water in it and see if it, I don't know, leaked out or something. They didn't do that. Okay. It's a good start. The tank's steel walls were too thin support a full tank of molasses uh the rivets were too weak uh the engineer knew about all of this and didn't care that's the that's the story it's it was so bad well that sets up the story (laughs) (laughs) the story behind the story got it it was so bad that children would be told by their moms to take a cup and go stand by the tank because there were so many leaks they could just hold a cup and quickly fill a cup of molasses and bring it back to their to their mom because there were so many leaks, they eventually painted the vat brown to try to hide how much molasses was leaking. They tried to like color match the molasses to oh. the, the vat color so Good. that you couldn't Good. tell how bad it was. Yeah. So, on January 13th, 1919, a ship arrives from Puerto Rico with 8.7 million liters of molasses. You'll probably remember that's how much our tank holds. Um, and if you're having trouble kind of visualizing how much molasses that is, it's three and a half Olympic-sized swimming pools worth of okay. molasses. Yeah, that's a little easier to picture. I don't know if picture. that helps. <laughs> Sometimes bit. you see Olympic-sized swimming pool metaphors and like, but is that even really well, imaginable? I don't not know. Not really, but it's no. more imaginable than just 8.7 million. Like, it gives me a better benchmark, at least. There's a lot of molasses. Is that how? Yeah, basically. <laughs> so the molasses is piped, you know, from the harbor to the vat through heated piping. So they used to heat it up mm-hmm. so, so that it would flow better. Exactly. Because yeah. it's it's less viscous, less thick mm-hmm. when it's warmer. Um, this vat had only been filled 29 times before this. And okay. only four of those times was it filled near capacity. So this is, this is actually one of the first times it had been full. Okay. Um, and the weather is also going to play a role here. Because on the 13th, uh, it's cold. Uh, the Got temperatures it. rose then from about in minus 17 Celsius to almost plus 5 Celsius. Oh, that's a big... On, yeah, yeah. On Wednesday, January 15th. So inside the tank, you have hot molasses coming in contact with the, you know, the remaining cold molasses already in the tank and the cold steel of the tank, uh, combined with that extreme temperature shift outside. And this was just too much stress for the shoddily made tank walls. And it explodes. Yeah. All 8.7 million liters of molasses spill out onto the streets. 13,000 ton tidal wave moving at about 56 kilometers an hour. Wow. It averaged a height of 8 meters, but it peaked at 12 meters high. So a 12 meter tall, 13,000 ton tidal wave of molasses coming at you at 56 kilometers an hour. Um, And you really have to remember that molasses is acting as a non-Newtonian fluid, like ketchup or toothpaste. It doesn't flow like water. Instead, no. it, it moves as a current. Um, 
like a lava flow or an avalanche. Yeah. Molasses is 60% more dense than water, which means it has more force behind it once it gets moving. It has more potential... Inertia, in this case. More potential energy. Um, Tidal wave was so powerful, it picked up a delivery truck and threw it into the Boston Harbor. Tea, molasses. I guess we're starting to make something. They throw everything in there, yeah, right. (laughs) Trucks. Yeah. Um, So the warmer, runnier molasses stuck to people and burned them. Oh, okay. It gets that warm. Most of the injuries were from burns. Okay. Well... When you think about it, it doesn't even have to be that hot to burn you when it sticks on your skin. It has to be hotter than... Yeah. Okay. You know. Yeah. So, but then as the temperatures cooled, then the viscosity increased and it started to trap people. Mm-hmm. Animals. Horses. Yeah. The Boston police, the Red Cross, the Army, Navy, cadets. Everyone showed up to help in the rescue. They stayed all night. They stayed for days and days after but you know they set up a makeshift emergency hospital in a building nearby with doctors and nurses and surgeons all helped out they had a really hard time trying to rescue people that were stuck in the molasses because they couldn't move very well they had a hard time identifying bodies because the molasses obscured people's faces um they didn't find everyone for months and months because some were swept into the boston harbor Afterwards, when they tried to clean up, it took weeks and months of farmers from neighboring towns that came and carted away molasses back to their farm. They can feed it to sure. the animals. I think that's what they did with it. Okay. But um, they had more than 400 men were involved in the cleanup, and apparently it smelled like molasses in that area for decades. Yeah, of course. Decades. Yeah. I wonder if they had bug problems. I would... I, you'd almost have to assume so. I, I, I'm trying not to assume, but yeah. Um, so that is the story of what's known as the Great Molasses Flood. But why? Why did it happen? We talked about it. But then, you know, we did our science, our modern day science, and found out some more interesting stuff. Um, like first, it's, it's the weather factors we've already talked about, but the warmer weather had another consequence, which is that warm weather meant more fermentation of the molasses Okay. And when the molasses ferments, it's producing carbon dioxide gas, yeah. which is increasing the pressure inside the tank. Yeah. Um, there was the tank itself, which we talked about, and the fact that it wasn't full very often. Um, the walls of the tank were actually weakened by the intermittent and cyclical loading of the molasses. But experts looked at the walls and realized that, I mean, it really wouldn't have mattered damaged or not, these walls weren't made properly to begin with. So in 2014, an engineering company did an investigation and found out the steel was only half as thick as it should have been, even with for the lax building standards of the day, it should have been twice as thick. Um, something they didn't know at the time, though, was that this steel was actually made wrong. Oh. The steel had was mixed with too little manganese. Okay. So apparently the amount of manganese kind of um, changes what they call the transition temperature. Mm-hmm. So when it had too little manganese, it gave it a high transition temperature. I don't really understand any of this. The important part is that the high transition temperature means it's brittle when it's cooled below 15 degrees Celsius. <laughs> In Boston, 
as you may know, it yeah. is often colder than 15 degrees Celsius. In fact, it would be very similar to where we live, building something for the outdoors and then being like, be careful, it can't get colder than 15 degrees Celsius. Yeah. Great. Implausible. Good job, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so why was this tank so shoddily constructed? As you said before, you know, they kind of probably rushed things for the war. Why they never fix it? I mean, again, money. But part of it might be because they appointed their treasurer to oversee construction. And no, he had no engineering knowledge or expertise or literally any, any information in this area. Um, but that's probably another symptom of a main problem, which is, again, profiteering companies that don't want to spend any money. Um, it's likely that that period still in company was trying to cut as many corners as possible. They didn't want to invest money in fixing this tank because they knew they weren't going to be able to use it for very much longer anyways. In fact, the next day after this disaster, January 16th, 1919, was the day the 18th Amendment was ratified. Uh, trust me, I wouldn't know the answer to this either, but do you know the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution? No, I don't. Um, prohibition. Oh. Right. That would so, have an impact. <laughs> so why would Purity Stilling Company want to spend any money fixing something that they thought they weren't going to be able to use very much longer anyway? So they're trying to make as much as possible with spending as little money as possible yeah. before Prohibition. Basically trying to cash in. Right. So the 18th Amendment took effect one year after it was ratified, mm -hmm. January 16th, 1920. So, yeah, that's a speculation is they cut as many cars as possible because they, they knew time was running running short. Um, well, I was surprised that we could know like the speed of the tidal wave and these things so accurately. But one of the reasons that we do know that is because of a 2016 investigation by scientists at Harvard. So they had like a double prong investigation. They had one team kind of looking at newspaper articles and maps and weather reports and first-hand accounts from everyone back in the 1919 papers and stuff. Yep. And they had another team that created a simulation where they built a scale model of the neighborhood and then flooded it with corn syrup mm -hmm. and used a high-speed camera to analyze what happened. Cool. Science is cool. Yeah. Especially when it's done on a small scale like that. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. It just seems like a really fun experiment. It does, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so you know someone's getting sued. I mean, this is... <laughs> the United States? Well... I would, I would argue that in this case, someone definitely deserves to get sued. I don't sure. care what country we're in. Yeah. Um, 119 residents brought class action lawsuit against the United States Industrial Alcohol Company. It was one of the first class action lawsuits in Massachusetts. And it's actually a milestone that paved the way for modern corporate regulations. Cool. Um, the company... Sorry, it's a kind of a laughable defense that they, they chose to go with here. The company claimed the tank had been blown up by anarchists because some of the alcohol produced was going to be used to make munitions. Um, it wasn't a very believable defense. Mm -hmm. Didn't work out for them. Uh, the court-appointed auditor found them responsible. Yeah, The investigation, sense. though, lasted more than five years. Over a thousand witness uh, testimonials over 45,000 pages of testimony, and it's still the longest legal case in the history of the city of Boston. Cool. 
1919 dollars, they had to pay six hundred and twenty-eight thousand dollars in damages. Nineteen. Okay. So we're at nine point three seven million in twenty twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. So if you had someone, if one of your relatives was killed, you would have gotten about seven thousand dollars. So one hundred and four thousand in today money. Yeah. Okay. Not exactly a lot, but I don't know how you really should value these things. That seems tough financially. Absolutely. So our next piece of history comes from only a decade ago. We're a little closer to home. Not very much closer to home than Boston, though, because we're going to go to Quebec. (laughs) Yeah. Still pretty far for us. (laughs) A smidgen. At least the same country, I guess. Um, Yes. But as I'll find out, Quebec kind of does their own thing when it comes to maple syrup. Yeah, so... Almost the when same country. When it comes country. to a lot of things, yeah. they, they just do their own. They do their I still think thing. of them as part of Canada. So. Well, of course they are. I know. Me just... too. We're going to talk about one of the greatest agricultural crimes in all of history. Okay. And I didn't call it that. Someone who's an expert did. So it must be. Right. It must be real. Uh, the Great Canadian Maple Syrup Heist. Some call it the Great Canadian Maple Syrup Caper. But I think that sounds like a 1960s Batman comic. So, so I... Kind of... Yeah, okay. I like it. <laughs> you like caper better than heist? Yeah. Okay. Heist gives it like an Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, caper makes it more fun. Or in this case, Ocean's 26. Caper sounds more like an adventure to rest. me. Fair enough. It was that. It was that. Um, so maple syrup's a little bit mysterious. Mm, no one knows where it comes from. Kind of. Not exactly like you're saying, but uh, the chemistry responsible for its flavor is not really understood. And neither are its origins. We obviously know where it comes from now. That's <laughs> <But> close. <laughs> um, indigenous North Americans were tapping maple trees and boiling sap to make syrup and sugar long before the Europeans came on over. Um, but, you know, oral history and archaeological evidence has failed us. We don't know how it originated, where it started, when it started, and how, whatever. But the Algonquins are credited with a method of the like tree tapping that we still use where you make a V-shaped incision into the trunk and using a funnel to cut the sap. That's something the Algonquins, we think, <laughs> invented. Sure. Um, so when the maple water exits the maple tree, it's 2 to 4% sugar. And then as they boil it, the sugar concentrates. Yep. To be syrup, it has to be 66% sugar. That's a lot of boiling. It's a lot of boiling. It takes a lot of maple water and a lot of time to make maple syrup, everyone. Um, if it's below 66%, it's not stable. If it's above 69%, it turns into something else. Candy, whatever. Yeah, right. You know. um, Quebec outputs around 33 million liters a year, but it's really hard to give an average like that because it varies so widely. The, the harvest is very dependent on the weather. Mm-hmm. How much maple water you can get from the trees it depends on the weather circumstances those trees experienced. Um, totally makes sense. Yeah. So this unpredictability is why in 1966, Quebec maple syrup producers made kind of a collective union for themselves um, called, uh, French words, Fédération des producteurs. As- oh, goodness. How do you say that word? The word that oh. means maple in French. I can read it, but I can't. Nope. Like, Don't know. 
Acer Cole du Quebec. Um, I'm terrible at French. We're going to go with the English. Okay. Which is Quebec maple syrup producers, QMSP. I'm good QMSP. with QMSP. That, that is what we're doing. But I'm going to keep calling it the Federation because the French word. Yeah, okay. I can say that one. Good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the Federation kind of was made so that they could standardize the industry and help maple sugar producers actually make a living at this. Um, and in 2000, the Federation created the Strategic Reserve, Maple Syrup Vault, okay, uh, which is wholly owned by the QMSP. And when production exceeds demand, surplus maple syrup is pasteurized and preserved in food-grade containers and stored in warehouses. The vault. This is not, that's the thing. It's not a vault. It's not a place. It's, it's a different places. Okay. It's only smart logistically to separate all your, you know, valuable assets. I mean, I've seen lots of heist movies and caper movies. I, I get it. Yeah. Just, we're not setting up for, you know, a yeah. nice, good, exciting <laughs> caper. No, it's not exciting at all. It's really not exciting. <sighs> <sighs> okay. Hang in there. I will. We'll, we'll get to something exciting eventually. I'm sure of it. Uh, so, when you have a poor harvest year... Syrup in the reserves is available if you need it. If you have a good harvest year, then you can store the extra for, you know, the next lean time. Yep. And according to the QMSP, this, you know, stabilizes the prices, eliminates swings, you know how much money you're getting. Some don't see the QMSP in such a rosy light. Some see it like a cartel. Yeah, you play by the rules or stay out of the business. You can't get involved. You have no control. You have no power. Uh, they control the supply, so they control the price. C- Quebec makes 75% of the world's maple syrup. Um, so, you know, because they do that, they can set the price globally. Yep, makes sense. Um, maple syrup, okay. See, I wrote this, you know, a few days ago. This seemed relevant, but it's probably completely wrong now. So, last I checked, is valued at about 1300 US dollars a barrel. Okay. It's <laughs> a lot. Uh, 26 times more expensive than crude oil. Yeah. But now, like I said, I don't think that that's, that's crude, true crude is going any up. longer. Yeah. Got it. Everything has changed in the oil game. But let's just agree that maple syrup is worth a ton of money. Sure. Um, Agreed. So here's how it works. In Quebec, any bulk syrup producer has to join the Federation. You have no choice. There are 13,500 maple syrup producers in Quebec. And each of them is allowed to send a fixed amount of syrup to QMSP for sale that year. Like a quota. There's a maximum. They inspect it, they taste it, and they grade it. So then they label each barrel with the grade extra light, light, medium, amber, or dark. Mm -hmm. um, And a percentage. Then some of it's sold immediately and the rest goes into one of the reserve warehouses. Producers, here's the catch, are only paid when the syrup is sold, which can mean oh. years if it's put in the reserve. Interesting. Yes. QMSP keeps $54 per barrel um, for like advertising, testing, grading, storage fees, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. When the stocks decline, QMSP might issue additional quotas to certain maple producers so they can send them more syrup that year. Um, and then when inventories grow too large, the QMSP will offer incentives to buyers. Okay. Yeah. So 
As I said before, the reserve isn't just one place. It's several facilities throughout rural Quebec. Um, in total, it can hold, it's, it's kind of, it seems to be always changing, 45 to 55 million kilograms of maple syrup. Yeah, okay, so a decent amount. Worth hundreds of millions. Right. Tens of thousands, like, so here's what you can imagine. Tens of thousands of white barrels, each containing 205 liters of maple syrup, stacked 20 feet high for as far as the eye can see. They showed pictures of these facilities. It's just basically like that vault in the Lost Ark. (laughs) It's better lit than that, though. Okay. (laughs) Everything's really bright, bright and white. Fair enough. Um, So, fun fact in 2021, which just happened, turns out, man, time flies. um, The QMSP announced it was releasing 22.7 million kilograms of maple syrup. That's 50 million pounds, by the way. Uh, from the reserves to meet the global demand because the pandemic has led to record sales of maple syrup in 2019, 2020, and 2021 all in a row. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, have to release some from the vault. And that's quite a bit. And obviously they're just like, yeah, here it is. Yeah. Like it's just there. It is there. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get to the heist. The caper. Which is not exciting. Right. Do you still want to call it a caper now that you know it's not exciting? No. It can be a heist now. <laughs> it is more like a heist because they don't find out anything happened until it's over. Okay. And that's why it's not exciting. So in July 2012, a QMSP employee named Michelle Gavreau was at a rented warehouse in St. Louis de Blanford. <laughs> so that was where part of the reserve was at that time. Okay. Um, it was just being held there temporarily while they were putting the finishing touches on a new storage facility in the nearby Laurierville, Quebec. Um, it was actually supposed to be transferred in a few weeks. So once a year. He, why was he there? He was there because once a year, QMSP takes an inventory of their barrels. Good practice. Makes sense. I wonder if they've increased the frequency of their Could be. <laughs> inventory yeah. since this happened. But So to do this, he has to climb up the barrels. I don't know why. They climb up the barrels to the top for some counting purposes. Um, and it's fun. I'm, I'm sure that's part of it. They probably wouldn't admit that to the CBC interviews, though, that I was reading. Right. Um, so he's near the top of the stack, and he feels one of the barrels teeter over and then almost fall. And he's thinking, because, you know, he knows this. The barrels should be, oh, you know, 270 kilograms, like 600 pounds, Probably shouldn't move just because he stepped on it. So he got suspicious and, you know, knocks on the barrel, hears an echo, has a bad feeling, opens the barrel, and it is empty. So he reports it, and there's a bunch of employees now searching the facility and finding more and more empty barrels, more and more and more, and even more of them were actually filled with water. So they were full, but they were full of water. So it's a really big mystery. There's no security cameras in these warehouses for some reason. Bad move. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah. Who would steal the syrup? And most importantly, how did they transport such heavy amounts of syrup out of there with no one noticing? Police eventually realized the barrels were siphoned off over the course of a year, probably. Mm-hmm. Starting sometime after the last inspection, it's every year in July, so after July 2011. So at some point between August 2011 and July 2012, thieves made off with 9,600 barrels of maple syrup, uh, nearly 2.5 million liters of syrup, 
which was 12.5% of the reserve. 3,000 tons of maple syrup. <laughs> yeah, wow. So the, the estimated value of the syrup is about 18 million uh, Canadian dollars. Now we're talking in Canadian dollars. Excellent. Dollar I love days. it. So the investigation was headed up by Surat de Quebec, the provincial police of Quebec. Um, the RCMP joined them and U.S. Customs. This was a massive investigation. Uh, 300 people were questioned, 40 search warrants. They kind of realized early on that it was most likely an inside job. Yeah, sure. Um, not that it was necessarily a member of QMSP, but possibly they thought a tenant who was like renting space in the same facility. So they thought that that's how they would get the access, like the key cards and, you know, reasons to be there, ID, kind of that that thing. But they knew, obviously, it was a team effort. It wasn't just one insider that had done the job. This was uh, definitely a group. They figured out that the gang uh, would truck barrels out of the reserve to a sugar shack nearby where they would siphon the syrup in the way that you would siphon gas out of, like, a, a gas tank in a car. You know, okay. suck on the one end of the hose and then put it... I don't know. I've seen it on movies. Yeah. <laughs> I've definitely never tried it. I don't want gas in my mouth. Well, try it on maple syrup. It's probably a better <laughs> way starting better point. way to practice yeah. than gasoline. Um, so yeah, and then they would use the same technique to refill the original barrels with water. As they started, you know, growing and doing more and more barrels, they brought accomplices in and they began just doing the siphoning directly at the warehouse facility. Um, they trucked the syrup south to the U.S. and east to New Brunswick, where there is a free market, because mm-hmm. as you you must understand about the QMSP is that you can't sell syrup. They are the only ones allowed to sell syrup in Quebec. Right. Unless you're selling a very small bottle at your hobby farm. Like there's, there's rules about. Yeah. yeah. So, so as I said before, they go to another province. People don't necessarily like this federation all the time. So the police eventually arrested 26 people and recovered about 70% of the stolen syrup. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, the rest was probably sold in the United States, or it might have been recovered, but I did not find that in my research. Okay. So the big question is who, who done it? Who the who done it is a obviously a lot of people. About twenty three or more. I mean, I did say twenty six, but good listening. Or more. That's what. That's <laughs> you know. Can't lose with that. No, I can't. I'll bet one dollar. That's right. Um, a man from Quebec, a Quebec man named Richard Vallier, and that's as good as I'm ever going to say that, was the accused ringleader. Okay. Um, During his trial, he testified he was forced to buy syrup stolen from the Federation and replace it with water by a man who carried a gun. And and he said that the man led him to believe he had links with the mafia, and so he had to do it. Um, Witnesses definitely disagree with his account. (laughs) Called him ringleader. Prosecutors definitely did did not buy this. Um, so Valier told the court that in the industry, he's known as a barrel roller, which is someone who buys and sells syrup directly from producers and bypasses the Federation illegally. Barrel roller. Okay. Yeah. Um, and in fact, later when he appeared before the parole board, like this is like last year, very recently, he admitted that one of the reasons he took part in the heist was that he was trying to get revenge on QMSP. In 2007, Valier was fined $1.8 million for selling maple syrup to unauthorized buyers in the black market. So he was angry. Sure. Partially for vengeance. Um, This time around, though, 
Valliere sold the syrup to Etienne Saint-Pierre, who was a New Brunswick-based syrup reseller. And the syrup was then rebranded and, you know, to appear as if it came from New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. Saint-Pierre, in defense, said to the jury, you can't prove what tree the syrup came from, as if that had to be an essential element of the prosecution. Uh, yeah, DNA. Uh, I mean, how interesting. I wonder. I don't think there would be DNA because DNA is not in sugar, but uh, yeah, you need protein. Know. But anyway, yeah. ooh, because you can DNA fingerprint trees. Okay, I'm off track. Um, you distracted me. How dare you? Uh St. Pierre, yes, this guy with the good excuses. He did admit he hated the QMSP too, and he resented their control of the market, and he said that they were as bad as the mafia. Okay. They're just like the mafia. That sounds like an exaggeration to me, but... Well, who knows? Maybe. So St. Pierre got two years in jail, minus one day. I don't know why. Oh, um, lucky. $850,000 fine. But Richard Valliere, he got eight years in prison, plus a $9.4 million fine. And his prison sentence was going to be extended to 14 years if his fine's not paid. That was the original sentence. Um, the Quebec Court of Appeal said that that was too excessive and lowered the fine to a million. But he appealed that too, and it's under appeal now. He actually just came out for parole like a month ago or something, this guy. Wow. His dad also went to jail for this. But the insider was a man named Avic. Caron, and his wife was one of the four people who owned that QMSP rented warehouse. I see. He was the one who hatched this whole plan, apparently, to steal a syrup. And he brought, you know, brought the offer, brought the plan to Valier um, to steal it. And he got a five years in prison and a $1.2 million fine. Um, if you want to learn more about this interesting page of Canadian Quebec history... Uh, the Maple Syrup Heist is an episode on Netflix's Dirty Money series, and it's all about this uh, hmm. historical cool. event. That's fun. So to complete the sugary set, I found a pretty interesting story about honey okay. um, and how it killed a thousand Roman soldiers. That's... Allegedly. Oh, okay. Let's go with allegedly. All right, let's do it. So it's called Mad Honey. It's very angry. It's... Not that kind of bad. It's from the Black Sea region of eastern Turkey. There is huge glades of rhododendron flowers there. And that's the key. So it's known, mad honey is known as deli ball in Turkey. It's dark and reddish. And and the special ingredient from the rhododendron, nectar, is called granatoxin. Now granatoxin, as the name suggests, is a toxin. It's a neurotoxin. Got it. That in very small quantities, well in any quantities, basically, will cause lightheadedness and hallucination, that type of thing. Um, If you take too much, bad things happen, but we'll get there. So in Turkey, this specific types of rhododendrons are all around, but also the, like, mountain slopes around the Black Sea are really humid and just have the perfect habitat for these specific flowers, which means they end up like a monocrop. So, yeah, okay. like, they're dominant, they're, they take over the area, it's just them, basically. And then what that ends up in is that, like, what that ends up doing is that bees make honey in the area, will only be able to get nectar from this one type of flower, and no other nectars get mixed in. That's how you get deli ball. Makes sense. Um, and although it makes up only a tiny amount of Black Sea's, like, honey production, 
people in Turkey are pretty, um, like traditionally, they like to, they like to use this honey and it's very popular. They believe it's kind of medicinal. They right. use it to treat high blood pressure and diabetes mellitus and some stomach illnesses. Some people use it to improve sexual performance. Um, and if you're Turkish, a lot of times you just start your day with a little spoon of honey. Why not? Um, but sometimes they boil it in milk. Usually they eat it right before breakfast by itself. Like they don't, you know, put it on the toast or stir in tea. Like this is like a, this is a, an, an eaten honey, not a ingredient honey kind of thing. This is special, right? Okay. Yeah. Good way to kickstart your day. Just slightly little bit high. I, I guess so. Yeah. Sure. Because Turks in the region, they know how to use this responsibly, right? Like they, and they can also taste the difference because it's very bitter. Apparently it's also called bitter honey and it causes a sharp burning sensation in the throat. So they know when it's faked or not. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so like I said before, if you consume too much though, it's not good. It can cause really severe sickness, like nausea, numbness, vomiting, diarrhea, loss of consciousness, seizures, death. Very rarely death, but... Uh, it's still um, not a good side effect. You may be surprised, or not at all, to learn that every few years there is an overdose or poisoning case, and it's, like always, a tourist in Turkey. Got it. Yeah. Didn't grow up with it, you know, don't respect it or don't understand it, you know. Yeah. So, one of the earliest reports of Mad Honey came from a man known as Xenophon of Athens. He was one of Socrates' students, and he was a historian, soldier, and a mercenary. Um, he wrote a chronicle called Anabasis. And he said in 401 BCE, a Greek army that he was leading um, was returning to Greece along the shores of the Black Sea. They had just defeated the Persians, you see. Okay. Um, and then near Trabzon, which is a place in northeast Turkey, they decided to, you know, feast on some local honey that they stole from some nearby beehives. And hours later, all his troops were vomiting, had diarrhea, were disoriented, could no longer stand. Everyone laid down and were fine the next day and went back to Greece. So allegedly they all died. No, they didn't die. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> we're not there yet. Later. Got it. Hundreds of years later, 67 BCE. We're back to Trabzon again in northeastern Turkey. Um, the Roman soldiers weren't as lucky as the Greeks. Got it. See, see, those were Greeks. I said Romans. I, I, I know. I was... They're the same thing, I know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no. Just I thought that this is where the story was going. I didn't realize um, it was a stepping stone. I have picked a lot of hard things to pronounce this episode. Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus. Pompey the Great. Okay. Is a Roman general. He and his army are chasing King Mithridates of Pontus and his Persian army along the Black Sea. These Persians. <laughs> been around for a while. They've been around for a while. Yeah. And, you know, they had home field advantage. They knew about this honey. So they gathered, like, pots of honey or honeycombs. It's different in different sources. Sure. And they kind of left them strategically all along the trail for the Russian troops to find. And the legend says the Roman troops ate this honey were really stoned and couldn't fight worth a, anything. And uh, over 1,000 of them were massacred and few Persians were lost. 
and there was a great victory. Right. That is what, that's what the stories say. So, yeah, okay. I get it. Allegedly. I mean... You can't really be so sure about no, things that and, happened and in... No, and it was just a contributing factor. I get it. That makes sense, though. I mean, the honey did not poison all 1,000 of them. No, this that's true. This is the most interesting honey story I could find when I googled it, honey disasters. Okay? It was a good one. It was a good one. <laughs> um, in the 1700s, they, like, traded the mad honey with Europe, and Europeans would put it in, like, alcoholic drinks to give kind of a, you know, more of a high than just being drunk. Um, you know, why not find ways to get uh, of more course. and more messed up? Um, American tales of mad honey can be found from Civil War times. Um, the Union troops found beehives in the mountains and ate the honey and then became sick and disoriented, much like the Roman troops in Turkey had. And you may be curious about that because the Civil War was in the U.S. Oh. Oh. Did you make that connection? I did, yeah. It's difficult to find in the U.S. But to be clear, it can be found there. And I'll tell you about that in a second, but it's it's not as easy to produce as I'm making it seem. You don't just go plant some rhododendrons and then your bees make mad honey. Ooh, yeah, they have to have a lack of other flowers or, or well, crops. Well, there's that too, but that would also be very easy to control sure. if you wanted to make money off of this honey, which you could because do you have any, any guess um, what you think the price would be like per pound? U.S. dollars. One million It's the most expensive dollars. honey in the world. Okay. I'll tell you that. There's Melaleuca or some other... Anyways, there are other expensive honeys in the world, but this is the most expensive. I don't know. Are you actually guessing a million as a serious guess? No, that was just Dr. Evil stepping in for a moment. Oh, okay. So um, it costs $166 US per pound. Okay. Yeah. So as I was saying, it can be found in the US. But... It's, again, not as easy to produce as you think because there are 700, over 700 species of rhododendron. And we think maybe two or three of the species make granitoxin in their nectar. So you need a very specific type of rhododendron, which you might be surprised Is it hard to, to identify? <laughs> no, one of them is definitely native to the Fertile Crescent Black of course, area. Yeah. Um, another type seems to be native to an area in the Appalachian Mountains, okay. which I've recently learned you're supposed to say Appalachian and not Appalachian. Appalachian. Yeah. But some people say it both ways. It's, it's okay both ways, maybe? Okay. I'm going to go with Appalachian for now. Sure. Um, so, normally, there aren't enough rhododendrons in, an, in one area to, to make the concentrated mad honey, mm -hmm. even if the, the right type of rhododendrons are there. So that's the two factors. You have to have the right type and almost only them. Yeah. But sometimes, when there's a late cold snap in um, the eastern U.S., it'll kill a lot of flowers, but the rhododendrons are the most hardy and they won't die. They'll survive, but they won't flower. No, but they're already flowered. Okay. We're talking about, like, late fall. Yeah, okay, got it, got it. No, there's a cold great. snap. A lot of flowers die, but not the rhododendrons. So all of a sudden, rhododendrons are the only ones around. I see what you're saying. The other okay. ones are all killed off. Yep, mm -hmm. I understand. So they're the only thing blooming. The, the bees are going to make mad honey during that period. And like I said, this is mostly in the Appalachian mountain area of the United States. So if there was a place to get it, that's where they would, that's where they'd get it. Makes um, sense. And I, yeah. So I, I don't know if I necessarily would ever want to, to try the honey. 
the whole burning your throat thing and, and bitter. hallucinating. I, <laughs> oh yeah, the bitter. It's weird. Honey's supposed to be sweet. It's kind of weird to think of it as bitter, isn't it? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, so um, that's definitely all we have time for, unless you want me to talk for another hour, but I don't think so. Well, you're we'll, gonna, we'll probably you're just have to call it there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll do it again. So I did want to say thank you so much for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new.